Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. This is the Pitchfork Review, the show about the musicians we're obsessed with and the albums you need to know right now. I'm Pooja Patel, the editor-in-chief of Pitchfork. And I'm Jeremy Larson, the reviews editor. Jeremy, what's going on? Oh, man, I am feeling some regret that we're about to talk about Bjork's new album, and I have never in my life foraged for mushrooms. Have you? I have. I'll teach you the ways. Really? That's exciting. (laughs) And the reason we're talking about mushrooms today is because Bjork's latest album, which is her 10th studio album, Pesora, is all about mushrooms, love, death, and family. So Bjork is an otherworldly figure in music, basically a mythical being to a certain kind of music fan, ourselves included. She is considered the mother of experimental pop music and has influenced huge stars across every genre, from artists like SZA to David Byrne to Radiohead. Bjork started making music when she was just 11 years old, and in the 80s, she was the lead singer of the acclaimed alternative rock band The Sugar Cubes. In the 90s, she went solo, and with her early albums like Post and Homogenic, she reinvented what pop music could sound like. Her songs were sonically rich, borrowed influences from underground electronic music, punk, and jazz. She captured delicate feelings about love, womanhood, and the human condition with songs like Army of Me and Hyper Ballad. In the 2000s, around the release of Medulla, her work became much more conceptual. Medulla literally used a human voice in the part of every instrument. So that's a pretty simple and easy concept to grab a hold of. And ever (laughs) since, um, you know, in the past decade, Bjork's albums have really focused on teasing out an idea in either an instrumentation or an emotion. And every one of her more contemporary albums has the specific aim, whether it's literally capturing the sound of the universe with an iPad app, like on Biophilia, or bringing you literally inside the feeling of heartbreak using virtual reality, like on Volnacura. Her albums are immersive and sometimes difficult, but always driven by her voracious appetite for music discovery and collaboration. You can hear the tonal maximalism of the experimental producer Arca from Arise In My Senses, taken off her last album, Utopia. Inside my body, 
And there's plenty to explore with her latest album, Fasora, too. We'll get into that in just a minute. Here with us now is Pitchfork writer Jasmine Rowe, who had the extremely enviable experience of getting to hang out with Bjork in Iceland. Hey, Jazz. Hello, Pooja. So I, like, want to hear about every single minute of you hanging out with Bjork. But I also want to backtrack a little bit first. As someone who is a huge Bjork fan, as I know you are, Mm -hmm. I'm curious about what the expectation is hearing that there is a new Bjork album after five years. Like, is it possible to have an expectation of a Bjork album, given that her more recent work has been all over the place in a delightful way? I mean, five years is the longest she's ever gone without releasing an album. And that Mm -hmm. goes right back to when she was 11. Mm -hmm. And I think at this point, you have no idea what to expect. You know, you never get every Bjork in one record. Uh (laughs) That's a good way of putting that. (laughs) She's going to be like pulling from these corners of history that maybe sound familiar, but you never knew that they had a name. Like Mm -hmm. I hear kind of Baroque stuff in the new yeah. record and ambient and then there are these more obvious kind of reggaeton and gabba influences from like obscure realms of techno music and she's so well versed in all of this in music that spans generations and even centuries that when she puts out a new record i think the people who have already decided that they love bjork are going to connect to it no matter what it sounds like We got the album in advance and we listened to it together ahead of its release. And for me personally, it was kind of an intense experience to listen to something that is so intimate Mm -hmm. in a group setting. So I'm curious, when you first heard the album, what was your first thought? Well, I remember the first track, Atopos. I was really taken aback because the last record, Utopia, was otherworldly very kind of warm and it was full of harps and flutes and you really felt like you're in this kind of maroon or purple galaxy or something mm-hmm. and somehow drifting through it. And then Atopos, the first track on Fasora, feels quite industrial. The production is spacious. It has these clattering drums. It kind of reminded me of some 80s post-punk kind of stuff in the production. But then as soon as the lyrics come in, it's the Bjork magic where Mm. no other songwriter in the world can pull off a line like, are these not just excuses to not connect Mm -hmm. and make it feel like the most powerful thing you've ever heard? Yeah, I mean, when I first heard it, because her last two records, she worked so closely with like Arca and Hacks and Cloak and with these experimental producers who are really into these cavernous, industrial, very digitalized electronic beats. And I think the opening track is such a good transition into and out of that because you get that industrial thing, but you also have these like instruments and these choral parts coming in. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you start to hear 
bass clarinets and you're like what this is something totally different you know and mm-hmm. i know she was careful to not say this is her clarinet album but like that is one of the main sounds you hear on this and like a bass clarinet is such an interesting i i would say like a an umami sound mm-hmm. like kind of like very much like a mushroom to me like i don't know a bass clarinet is it the 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 goose of the orchestra that's my <laughs> thought <laughs> and i it it gives like a sense of fun and levity and quirkiness and esotericness that that like makes me smile even though the subject matter of a lot of especially the first half of the record is like very deep and very intimate and personal to her it's also crazy to me i mean you're mentioning that she quickly abandoned the idea of calling this her clarinet album and in jazz your interview she said that she thinks about visuals in conceptualizing music and that she decided that this was her Mushroom album and that it was bubbly and sprightly and fun? Yeah. The album that Bjork hears and describes is not necessarily the one that you hear when you listen, at least the first time. But <laughs> Absolutely <her> ex- not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but her explanations have this, this real profound truth to them. And the more time I spend with this record, the more I hear that it's not this cold and maybe austere record that I maybe thought it was the first time. And instead, I hear this earthy hum underneath it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the bass clarinets are not an easy instrument to assimilate into a pop song. Mm -hmm. But the way that she does it, she uses them in a completely unique way. And they sound so puckish or impish or something Mm -hmm. and you know the word she used was comical like she finds the bass clarinets literally funny she doesn't try to give them gravitas i think she sees them like these bursting spores in a fungal network or Mm -hmm. um you know like the little caps of a mushroom kind of sprouting up and being like hey surprise i want to like pull out something you just said there which is that it is hard to put a bass clarinet into a pop song what on this album sounds like a pop song to you jess (laughs) That's a good question. You know, as a broad term, I think a topos, like the first track, it has a chorus. It has this like bouncy beat. I can't imagine hearing it on the radio per se, but I can imagine if there was some kind of collapse of civilization, maybe in 100 or 150 years, then I can see that being the music that people use to, you know, <laughs> celebrate and have a party. I just think it's, you know, it, it doesn't seem like an exercise in, it doesn't feel academic in any sense. So it has that pop element to me. I don't know if that there is like a play unfolding in this album, but I remember listening to it for the first time and feeling like my body was like shriveling into itself. Mm-hmm. Like right after the two songs about her mother, when she is talking literally about like a return to earth. And like literally describing the limits of life and and how they then become life again. And it felt like a bad acid trip. I mean, it it just like fully felt like a scary moment in that album. Mm-hmm. And then it returns into this lovey, you know, like a spring. It's almost like a classical movement, you know, like it's like fall, winter, spring. And you feel that through the course of the album. 
I think that she's just so powerful in invoking nature and like the cycle of that through these songs. I love that you're feeling that. I mean, I, I feel something similar, which is that Bjork is one of the few artists who sort of allows you to engage with these very complicated feelings mm-hmm. when she moves to even more difficult topics like cycles of death or having sort of ancient rituals be in conversation with like modern medical technology and like juxtaposing all of that together. I think her music needs to get even more dense and difficult and textured so that it gives this really lush bed for all of these ideas to mm-hmm. exist. And I just, there's no real other artist who's allowing these really mature thoughts to exist in their music. And I'm not talking about, you know, like like adults only, but I'm talking about talking about death in a really vulnerable way, in a way that is really giving and hopeful. You know, I think one thing we can talk about is how much she mentions the word hope on this record and how that is sort of different form of grieving here than the kind of grieving she was doing on, say, like Volnacura for her relationship or her marriage. I think it's also worth remembering that she made a lot of this record during the pandemic. Yeah. And Mm. it was also for her a return home to Iceland. Mm -hmm. And the pandemic in Iceland, because it's an island and it's quite isolated, being home meant being in nature. She was allowed to go for walks and spend time on the coast in Reykjavik, which is incredibly beautiful, but also being Björk, she has this huge lodge in the wilderness, which she calls a cabin. And spending time there is the most peaceful, but also kind of forbidding or imposing kind of environment where you feel the spectacular kind of scary hugeness of nature all around you. There's an enormous lake that was formed by a volcanic eruption thousands of years ago. There are these little black islands coming out of it because they haven't been around long enough for grass to grow on them. So I feel like the idea of nature, the pandemic time when she was making the album, and the idea of death and natural cycles are all intertwined on this record. Well, I am very desperate to know about what it was like to spend time with Bjork in her hometown. So we're going to take a quick break and then come back and talk about that. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, so Jazz, you kind of last minute flew to Iceland to hang out with Bjork for a day or two days. Yeah. Can you describe what Bjork's energy is like? Like, what was the most surprising 
or best or weird or uncomfortable or all of those things about spending time with her. I think the most surprising thing was that she's so much like the person you would anticipate meeting from listening to her records. She's, uh-huh. she, you know, I always think of what's special about her voice as just being closer to the feeling she's expressing than other people. Mm. I don't know if that's just what singing is or if it's something unique to her, but something about that connection with whatever's going on inside her and in the people around her, that spontaneity, that hugeness of emotion that seems constantly to be welling up inside her is absolutely present in her everyday manner of being. Her face is just constantly expressing the cogs (laughs) whirring in her brain and like she has these (laughs) hectic mannerisms that are so involving and you really feel heard when you're speaking to her because she's visibly listening to you like she's reacting to every little thing and she's just one of the most present people I've ever met. So having had the experience of being in her personal space and the space where she wrote and like kind of conceptualized a lot of the album can you describe what that place looked like what it felt like you know where's Bjork's inspiration hub what does it look like? As soon as I stepped out of her Land Rover, you go into like this incredible little garden with a little potato patch. And to my right was this tower, which is no more than six feet wide. And she calls it her reverb chamber. And when you go inside, it has a mirrored floor. It's incredibly claustrophobic, but it also has the most beautiful reverb or, you know, not quite echo that you could possibly conceive of. She made it with an architect and designed it herself. And it's just this funny little cubicle in her garden next to all of the birch trees and all of the plants and vegetables that she's growing. That was a great introduction to the world that she makes for herself. Within the lodge, it was even crazier. It was like taxidermy crows hanging off branches. Mm-hmm. There were That's the stuff. That's what I'm talking about. Chairs carved into like the shape of these haunted looking trees. There were walls lined floor to ceiling with what felt and looked like troll hair, like Uh the hair from troll Uh dolls. And then like you go upstairs and it's still all fantastical, but then you go into the room where she made the album and there's almost nothing there. And (laughs) it just felt like you were hitting pause on the wonderland of her mind. And I think in that room, she's able to approach creating things from more of a blank slate. So the only thing in there was a yoga mat, which I later learned wasn't for yoga. It was for doing knee slides on when she has parties. (laughs) (laughs) And it was kind of like pretty low key for Bjork. And this is where she composed a lot of the album on her laptop. She basically composed the whole record, all of the orchestrations, using her own voice, just pitched differently. And then over the two years after she was writing it, started turning all that into string arrangements, bass clarinet arrangements, flute arrangements, all of that kind of stuff. It's so fascinating to hear you talk about being in that actual physical space, because I think her albums, again, especially, I mean, you could say that about all her albums, but like even recently, like her albums are such physical spaces that you kind of step into. Mm-hmm. And when she worked with virtual reality, that's when I really sort of found that metaphor to be, well, A, like actualized. You could 
put on a VR headset and walk into Bjork's heart like and <laughs> and it was I'm like okay like I get it like we we're, we're here but that to me the physical aspect of her albums to me is like such a crucial part of what makes them long lasting and and like really sort of permanent monuments of music like especially in the 21st century Mm-hmm. I think when you see how wholly she embodies the ideas in the music, it's impossible yeah. to be skeptical of her anymore. And you definitely totally. get that from her visual ideas, but also, you know, from being in her house and being in her presence. It's part of a whole thing. I mean, I also feel like she is like constantly in some way reinventing spirituality and like what space and time feel and look like. Mm-hmm. And this is her Earth album. I think that. You had said in your story, Jazz, that Utopia was airy and and feeling Mm -hmm. light and trying to explore the air up there. And this is like a return to Earth and wanting to feel rooted. The way that she spoke about this album and Utopia and also Volnacura is as a kind of series. And she compared it to a series that began in 1997 when she released Homogenic. That was a kind of disaster album. It starts with this like state of emergency chorus. It came out of a very turbulent time in her life. She'd been through some very public relationships and breakups and was going through some really difficult stuff. So she made this album, which she called her Iceland album, which was a return home for her. She described it as trying to invent Icelandic classical music because it didn't really exist before as a tradition. And after that record, she made Vespertine, which was a very domestic, very cuddly album about being intimate and being in love. And it had these really warm kind of ambient synth sounds. It was an album about feeling safe. And then after that, she made Medulla, which was composed almost entirely from vocals. It was again like coming down to earth, it was saying, okay, the world's not like the world I created in Vespertine. So I'm going to try and keep some of that and then bring in these rougher, more difficult textures and timbres and rhythms. And I think the same process has happened with Volnacura, Utopia and Fasora. Volnacura about this terrible breakup, a time of betrayal and questioning family and kind of losing grip on a reality that you'd spent over a decade building. And then there was Utopia, which was creating a fantasy land, creating like a wonderland with flutes. And it was very based on ideas of escape and creating an alternative universe. And now I think, yeah, with Fasora, she was really consciously returning to Earth. This is the other side of the mushroom theme. It's about being in the ground and living within a network that's sort of part of something bigger. And she's also using these bass clarinets, which have an earthy sound and are also performed by a sextet, which she wanted to be three men and three women, because Utopia for her was a kind of very feminine energy. She made it with Arca. She used a lot of women orchestral musicians. So at this point, inviting men back into the world was also Mm -hmm. part of that idea of compromise. Imagine having to like return to Earth by accepting men into your music. (laughs) You know, I think that's sort of the optimism. Like, she talks a lot about how her mother was this more cynical one, and Mm -hmm. and Bjork's always sort of had this optimism. And I think that's what sort of I love about the centerpiece of this album, Ancestress, sort of like reckoning 
with these two things and how that sort of bleeds into the last half of the record, which are a lot of love songs, really. And they contain some of my favorite lyrics on this album. On Fungal City, she has this line that's like, his body calligraphs the space above my head, which like isn't a word, but you understand that like, oh, like she's turning like calligraphy into this verb and it's so incredible. You know, and she has that line about how she doesn't really want to honor grammar because sometimes the best stuff just comes from not thinking about it too much. Mm -hmm. And there is this line that is, again, just like unique. No one else could sing it and no one else could write it except for her. And it's the kind of thing that sticks with me, even though it is set to a melody that I could not hum if you paid me a thousand dollars. Well, I think that Bjork is at her best personally when she is being really like plainly stated about extremely difficult and moving things. And these two songs that are about her mother, Sorrowful Soil and Ancestress, kind of get at the thing that women of a certain age, myself included, are in constant existential crisis about, which is how do you bring life to this earth, take care of it as the earth is crumbling, and then feel that you have done enough while also not mirroring the mistakes of the people before you, which is just like an incredible weight to carry. The doctors, she The way that she is talking about a pacemaker, which is essentially a heartbeat, and and doing that with that kind of rhythm to me just is like so, I mean, it just like leveling for me. And then add to that lyrics like, you see with your own eyes, but here with your mother's, there's fear of being absorbed by the other. Something that is so profound and just encapsulates the intense like emotion of being in love with someone that you are a part of, you know, and and someone whose legacy is yours to carry on. I literally heard that song and on first listen cried. Hmm. That kind of like clear writing and the simplicity of that kind of language is just stunning. To the point about the being absorbed by the other lyric, I think it's interesting to consider that in the context of how Bjork uses her own children's voices on this album. Um, They're not necessarily distinct elements, but on a couple of songs, they're used for sort of backing harmonies and just to add texture to the songs. So it is as if on this record, her children kind of are absorbed into Bjork's world. I think, yeah, this theme of what it means to be a mother and also a daughter is really at the forefront of this record. Wasn't sorrowful soil in parentheses followed by the word eulogy yeah one is eulogy and one is epitaph Epitaph, and i do feel like her using her 
own children on an epitaph to her mother in an album that is about growing roots into soil <laughs> and and death as life, you know, I feel like she's achieved peak Bjork. Right. This is it. It's the, you know, the idea of inheriting some matriarchal trauma that's also a strength and finding a way to sort of build that into your relationship with your children so it doesn't come as a shock but so that you're also not burdening them with all of this uncomfortable knowledge about what it means to be close to death and to carry somebody's mistakes with you and to love them anyway. Are we united in our favorite song? Is it Ancestress? Yeah, I, I like Ancestress. I also really like the title track. I think we, when you talked at the beginning about like, is there a pop song on there? I would mm. say maybe like the title track is the closest thing that like you could maybe hear on a radio. It's sort of it's got like a momentum to it. It sort of starts small, ends big, which is usually not how Bjork songs go. Mm-hmm. Bjork songs are to me like very like modular and sort of like spirally. I haven't heard a Bjork song that sort of starts small and, and ends with this sort of explosion. <laughs> It is to me like a really fascinating use of dynamics, of pop dynamics in a song that is very dense and industrial in and of itself. Jazz, what about you? I want to give some love to Freefall, which is easily overlooked because it's basically... Yeah, that is surprising. Right. It's like a ballad. It's a love song. It's quite conventional, but it's so, so beautiful. Mm -hmm. Our solar She talked about composing this song and trying to do all these different arrangements for different instruments. She tried bass clarinets. She tried. She might have tried flutes. In the end, it's this incredible string arrangement, which she says is the best string arrangement she's ever done. And it sounds so perfect that I think she was kind of scared to make it sound so beautiful. I think this ties into this pattern throughout her career of maybe moving away from the obvious choice and trying to find the sound that's specific to the emotion she's describing. Mm. You know, it has this kind of anxious, romantic feel to it. I don't know exactly what it's about. She was a little bit cryptic in the interview, but I think to her, it's about a very specific real thing that happened with a partner. Yeah, it feels very heart on sleeve. And that's the one that I keep coming back to. Where does this album land in your personal Bjork canon jazz? Like, where is this album for you? I think... Is it better than Utopia? Is the, it's is better than Utopia. Question? I'm putting it's my foot down. It's better than Utopia. I think it's better than Utopia. I think it benefits from being quite texturally diverse, from having these industrial sounds that contrast with the really raw emotional lyrics. I think Fasora is a generous album. It has a lot of surprises. It gives you 
quite a few different Bjorks. Like, not every Bjork, but you get mm-hmm. maybe five or six different kinds here. And mm-hmm. I think that was a product of it taking so long to make and it's soundtracking different events in her life, some that were tragic, some that were beautiful. So for that reason, like, yeah, I have a lot of love for it and I have a huge soft spot for this record, maybe more so than most of the stuff in the back half of her career. Yeah, I'm with it. Jeremy? Yeah, I, you know, there's something a little bit smaller about this record, um, perhaps because you can kind of absorb the instruments or you can recognize like, oh, that's a choir. That is a clarinet. Like that is a gong. Whereas some some of the stuff on Utopia and um, Bolnacuro were such alien textures on purpose that it, it's sort of hard to pinpoint um, like a feeling into that. So here I do feel like this record, as she has described it, is like much more grounded um, much more something that tactile, something I can grab onto. I, I am always going to love the Bjork of a woman who holds a note for, I don't know, longer than two seconds. I would love to hear her voice just sort of held out a little bit longer. She is right now currently in this mode where she makes a meal out of every word, but each word is just sort of sung in the same sort of uh, like liturgical <laughs> rhythm, uh-huh. and and I, again, and I, I understand that I, I love the idea of it. I love the flow of it, but I miss a little bit of the length of her voice, like letting it just sort of hold out for like a note, and then you can kind of like feel it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I think these last records have been so much about her these words and these lyrics. And they're so wonderful. But again, like that what makes them kind of so difficult to just sort of, hey, put on some tunes. Do you want to listen to Fasora? Like, well, I'll do it on my own time. Thank you very much. You know, <laughs> like it's a it's it's funny that, that we talk about Bjork as such a an artist who makes communal and collaborative records, but the experience of them to me are is such a very solo and intimate affair. Before we go, I have one last question for you. We have a lot to meditate on with Bjork. Everyone, please listen to it by yourself in a dark and quiet room, (laughs) staring at the wall with a box of tissues nearby. But what are we excited about listening to next? What's coming up that's on your radar that you're really amped for, Jazz? I'm really excited for a new record from Richard Dawson, who is a British singer-songwriter. He's from Newcastle. He kind of reminds me of Bjork in a way. Like he Absolutely. Absolutely. He brings in inspirations from across all of history. He has this kind of folk grounded songwriting style. But where he differs is that his albums are a bit more explicitly conceptual. Mm-hmm. But he has this very unique, honest voice and almost naive melodies, just like Bjork, that grounds the songs in these emotional realities that the characters are experiencing. Jeremy, is there anything else that you're looking forward to? I just want to shout out um, this wonderful live jazz set by Jeff Parker. Uh, It's called Mondays at the Enfield Tennis Academy. Jeff Parker, who's one of the most exciting guitarists currently making music right now. Jazz and Jeremy, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for hanging out. Happy foraging, everyone. The Pitchfork Review is a production of Condé Nast. 
Thanks to Jazz Monroe and Jeremy Larson. You can find them at Jazz underscore Monroe and at Jeremy D. Larson on Twitter. You can also check out Jazz's interview with Bjork at pitchfork.com. Catherine Fenelosa at Rococo Punch is our senior producer. James Trout at Rococo Punch is our technical producer. Ryan Domble is our showrunner. Jessica Grumalia is our music supervisor. I'm the editor of Pitchfork, Pooja Patel. Thanks for listening.